Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. How's it going, film fans? Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to our first uh, audience selection episode. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we did a vote on Instagram to find out what school movie everyone wanted us to talk about, and we... uh, the, the audience selected Dead Poet Society. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Precisely, precisely that. Yeah. Oh, Captain, my Captain. It's a, uh, it's got a big legacy to it. It's a well-known movie. Uh, we're excited to sort of get some audience input on what we are going to talk about. And just a note, we will be doing that going forward. So every couple weeks there'll be another one that sort of allows you to pick a movie that fits some sort of a theme with the other movie that we're going to talk about in that month. But uh, this month we did Mean Girls, and then you chose Dead Poet Society, so we're going to get into it. What a contrast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of like that we, we had one that's far more from a female perspective, and this one is distinctly, uh, for better and worse, uh, in the male perspective. Very much agree with all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to kick it off, one thing I wanted to ask you, Tay, was did any of your English teachers put on this movie in class? Actually, no. I I had not seen this movie until I went out of my way to see it in university. So I was kind of late to the party on this whole movement. But I grew up, you know, watching Robin Williams in a ton of movies. Uh, and I've always, like, known the big scenes from Dead Poets. Mm-hmm. Like, pretty much they were ingrained in pop culture. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd heard many references to this kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, I actually... I had a teacher very similar in high school to uh, Mr. Keating in this film, and uh, mm-hmm. I still see him as a big inspiration as to why I like enjoyed reading and particularly why I even like Shakespeare at all. Yeah. So how about yourself? Uh, so I didn't actually have any teachers use this in class, but I knew people who did. I think one of my siblings had a teacher that did as well. And I kind of, I think it's funny how this movie can be used as a shorthand for a certain type of teacher. Um, an idealized type. Um, <laughs> yeah, indeed. But and and just how how much it's undercut by the idea of a teacher playing it in class. I did similarly. I had a music teacher who had us watch Mr. Holland's Opus, which is a movie about a music teacher changing kids' lives. And I I always thought that was kind of funny that a teacher would play something like that in class, namely because I mean my music teacher was not particularly like Mr. Holland, and I doubt there are a ton of teachers out there who are like uh, keying. Um, I would, I would assume that that kind of teaching doesn't really fly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to swim that much upstream, I think, especially at the school that Keating decides to, uh, to, to do this at. Um, that's actually one of the big questions I had about the movie, even rewatching it again, just like how aware is Keating that what he's doing is frowned upon because he seems very smart and aware but mm-hmm. he's seemingly caught off guard at all these obstacles in the way of teaching the way he likes to teach. Yeah, and that, I mean, that sort of gets into how, uh, like, optimistic or idealized or yeah, I'd unsubtle say idealized. this movie is, right? Like, he goes into this as a, um, you know, as a, a, a former pupil of this school. He knows how the school operates, and he distinctly deviates from conventional lesson styles and things like that and he encourages his students to do a lot of things that a a normal teacher wouldn't so i i 
I think it 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 kind of I don't know if it actually makes Keating look that good in the end. Um or like oh, just aware of his situation. Mhm. And uh, of sort of, you know, what the potential consequences could be. I do think the movie is very careful to show where Keating does not overstep his bounds in telling a student to directly um go against their parents' wishes, right? Like in mm-hmm. there are some critical scenes about where uh, one of the one of his students is having difficult with their difficulty with their father and he just encourage him to, encourages him to speak to his father to actually express himself which is subversive in and of itself i know there are definitely families that you come from where there is no back talk there is no negotiation or discussion so even mm-hmm. that in and of itself is um uh potentially dangerous but the the movie does go out of its way to make sure you know that he's not telling neil robert sean leonard's character to directly go against the wishes of his father yeah and i guess with that maybe we should go ahead with our plot summary since you pretty yeah. much just gave us a good overall synopsis but yeah officially yeah. We, we can dig into it more but just in case anyone hasn't watched it uh dead poet society is about an unconventional english teacher who urges his students at a stuffy vermont boarding school to seize the day broadening their horizons to new forms of self self-expression much to their parents and other educators dismay Dead Poets Society, starring Robin Williams, Robert Sean Leonard, and Kurtwood Smith, and directed by Peter Weir, was released on June 2nd, 1989. Interesting that you uh, didn't have Ethan Hawke in the in the starring I don't section. Think it, I don't think it stars him. This is another thing that you and I were talking about before we started recording, and something that we'll dig into, but Neil, or sorry, Ethan Hawke plays Todd, and I think he provides a perspective because I think they they give you a lot of different characters at the student level in this. And they all sort of plot different points along a spectrum of how they take to Keating's style of education and the lessons he's trying to impart. And I think Ethan Ock's character is a critical one of those perspectives. But I don't think this movie is very much about him. Arguably, this movie isn't about the kids at all. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting take on it, too. Obviously, you see Ethan Hawke as one of like the lead credits of this film when you see it now, like the cover mm-hmm. of it and everything. But like you kind of inferred, a protagonist is usually a way for us to get into the story, a perspective mm-hmm. for us as an audience member. And seemingly at the beginning when they arrive at the prep school, this is the case. We mm-hmm. are following the awkward new kid into the dorms uh, where he's introduced to all the characters. Yet it kind of stops there. He becomes one yeah. of the characters at that point. Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Like, this character has experience at other boarding schools, right? There's all this talk about why he switched from one place to another place and how he's his older brother had already gone to this school, to, to Hilton Academy, and and how he'd have to live up to the expectations of this great older brother. So It was valedictorian or something and, and, yeah. and more. And while a protagonist like this normally would be sort of the grounds for exposition throughout the movie where they talk about here's what a boarding school is like here's what this is like etc etc they really just use him to introduce the other characters in the study group that he that he joins with uh, Robert Sean Leonard and uh, Josh Charles and Gail Hansen and a few of the other boys but beyond them being introduced to him you're right he's not used as a tool to provide exposition to the audience yeah, and his arc is no more no more or less significant than mm-hmm. any of the other boys at that point. 
and moving forward throughout the film. Like he, yeah. he, they all have a significant learning experience, either through Keating or through other events that happen throughout the school mm-hmm. year. But he just kind of blends in with the rest of them after that introduction of him. Yeah, and I mean, so that begs the question. If this movie is about the students or any one of the students, uh, I think Robert Sean Leonard definitely, you know, obviously has the most palpable and chartable arc of the yeah. uh, of the kids. But the tagline for this movie is he was their inspiration. He made their lives extraordinary, referring to Robin Williams. Um, yeah. It, or is it? That's the thing, right? Yeah. Ah. Is he is it? That's a good point that it could be that. You know, especially from Ethan Hawke's character, uh, from Todd's perspective, Neil uh, is sort of an inspiration and a, uh, a a source of galvanization for him in what you assume he'll be after this movie is done, right? Yeah. I, I, I was just kind of messing with you. I do actually think that <laughs> the tagline is referring to Robin Williams' character, Mr. Keating. However, yeah, I think, I think that's a fun read. Left though. somewhat, yeah, it's somewhat left up mm-hmm. to interpretation because of Ethan Hawke's character in the film. Sorry, Todd mm-hmm. in the film. Yeah, and I mean, earlier versions of this script, uh, where the framing device in them was Keating was on his deathbed, dying from some form of uh, lymphoma. Right. Um, and they scrapped that. Uh, I believe Weir, uh, the director Peter Weir. Um, scrapped that part of the script because he didn't want it to be that much about Keating. And I mean, despite his best efforts, you know, I think most of what happens in this movie that's memorable, the tagline, um, you know, a lot of the cause and effect of the movie is just based around Robin Williams' character no matter what. And it's it's a great performance by Williams as well. I think when you hire Robin Williams, he is automatically your sell point mm-hmm. and your main character and your inspirational character all in one yeah. package. Well, that said, like this was, as far as I can see, just sort of scanning the IMDb, I think this was his first or one of his first forays into proper drama. Right? Ah, okay. And he did, I mean, he got an Oscar nom for it. And then I, he won later for uh, Goodwill Hunting, I believe. Right, where he really sort of solidified himself as that strong dramatic force as well, to having a lighter touch. And, I mean, you can see in a lot of the reviews and the critics from this era, a lot of them sort of applaud him for not relying on as many of his jokes. There are still scenes where he does impressions and things like that. But in context at the moment, this this seemed like a real departure. And it was really only... Um, Roger Ebert, who said that William Still was hamming it up too much and overdoing it. Yeah, Roger Ebert seems to have just had something like he was he was a stickler for stuff like this. Yeah. He he wanted to tear apart big movies that mm-hmm. had a bit of prestige value. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even though they were a, this was, I'm guessing you know, kind of guessing the zeitgeist of the time is difficult for us at this point. But mm-hmm. this is kind of a unique movie at any point in film history because there's not really many movies like Dead Poet Society. No, there aren't. There, you, there are certainly your dramas, your your school dramas, things like that. But it, it certainly, I think it struck a chord. Um, even at the time, if you look at the critics, a lot of them are saying it's a little too sappy. It's a little cloying. And I think they're 100% right. This movie Correct. Is, is strongly directed by Weir in a single direction, right? It doesn't really hold back. Um 
But I, I mean, it, it worked and I think it hit really hard. It was the fifth highest grossing movie of 89 and it was the highest grossing drama of the year. It got a couple different Oscar nominations. Its budget was 16 and a half million and it made 235 million, which That's is a uh, very wild. impressive stat. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I mean, it, it goes to show like that. And then again, you listening right now, if you haven't watched the movie, you know, oh, Captain, my captain, you know, Carpe Diem, not because they're great lessons, but because they they resonated and were then spoofed in a number of different shows and other movies. They're a shorthand for respecting your leader or living in the moment, things like that. Like my my personal favorite is the very direct spoof in uh, Community, the TV show, where um. One of this teacher sort of running a community college class is just trying to get people to seize the day, um, which to him is just a matter of almost just being unpredictable, right? He goes to order a coffee and orders a, a birthday cake instead, or you can see him in the background of shots climbing trees and things like that. It's very silly. Fun fact, my high school, which was built in, I think, 2001, our mantra slash catchphrase was carpe diem. And I had no idea the context that they just ripped it off of Dead Poets Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) until maybe grade 12. And then I thought it was even dumber than when I initially heard it. Yeah, (laughs) I I like that idea that, yeah, this movie was so foundational that then it influenced another generation of educators who were coming into it, who again, like, had Keating as a role model in terms of the positive effect that you could have on kids to the extent that, yeah, they would put up carpe diem in their classroom or it would be the mantra for an entire school, which yeah, again so is, I think, saying a bit this, of a shortcut. <laughs> so you're saying this movie kind of infected the ego of all teachers? I think so. I think, <laughs> and just like, you know, if you've seen Mr. Holland's Opus with Richard Dreyfuss, it, it's this big drama about the importance of teaching music in high school and what what the value that arts have which is a version of this as well right this is about the 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 effect that poetry can have and i think they very wisely chose poetry in this movie as something that's so easy to write off as a high school student or equally as often and at any age probably as a as a man as a as a male um it's easy to I think it, it's much maligned, right? It's it's mm-hmm. things like like jazz or like dancing, things like that, where you know that there are experts in it. You know there are people who are good at it. You know there is a way to understand it, but you have to be able to break in. And I think it was a very wisely chosen uh, sort of vehicle for this movie's catharsis. You know, I was struggling really hard to think of movies similar to that that fit in with those two. And mm-hmm. uh, do you ever see that movie Take the Lead with Antonio Banderas? No, no, I yeah, haven't. He like see teach you know, dance. New teacher teaches a bunch of inner city kids how to school how to dance like Latin dancing, and then yeah. he like in turn you know, learns learns from them like because they have all these yeah. other dance moves to offer him. What is the name of the move you just did? <laughs> Ain't got no name. What you're looking at is history in the making. Your music with uh, my music. Check this out. Uh, like they teach him like hip hop and break dancing and yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. So oh he, uh, yeah, I don't it's remember one of those, being like, terribly cheesy, could... but in retrospect, it probably almost oh, certainly is brutal. And I think to this movie's credit, it doesn't fall into that huge crevice of cheesy teaching movies, which well, where which can be gonna... summed up as as um, I was going to teach these kids, but they ended up teaching me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
right? Like they they actually this movie is they, not they like avoid that, that actually at all. Yeah. No, like he, if, if Robin like Williams he... learns something, it's something more dark and 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 not something you'd nef- necessarily want to celebrate. Yeah, he it's it's not a give and take kind of thing with Robin mm-hmm. Williams. He is very much the provider of the knowledge that these boys seemingly very much need at this point in their lives. Yeah. Uh, and in return, he may be like, I guess, like the only information we have on what he gains as a return is he just says at one point when he's talking to uh, Neil's character or when he's talking to Neil that mm-hmm. he just loves teaching. Neil questions why he's so far away from home, why so far away from his partner. And he just says, I just love being here. I don't want to be anywhere else. I love Mm -hmm. teaching. Well, and I think the thing that's being inferred there too, is that he knew what it was like to go to Hilton Academy. He had that personal experience and, and, you know, to an extent, I think a a great motivation being that if I, what, what's the teacher that I would have wanted to have? What are the things I didn't learn here that I wish I had learned earlier? And I think it's a very virtuous position for, and and, as you can see in that scene, I actually really like that scene because Neil is kind of horrified that this good of an educator with reasons to be elsewhere with his, um, is it his, his partner is, is in London or something. She's, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic and he's kind of horrified that anyone would choose to be at Hilton and, uh, and, and, Keating makes it clear that, you know, he loves teaching. And then I think it's implied that he wanted to make a difference there where he, he knew what it was like otherwise. Yeah, I really appreciate the fact that there's not a moment that you kind of get beat over the head with that idea or that notion. Mm-hmm. It's simply implied through his actions and his interactions yeah. with the kids themselves, which I don't know when a movie can speak for itself like that. I think that's one of the many uh assets that this movie has going for Mm -hmm. it because it does stand out and that's like the main reason i think we even included it in our vote in our poll because Mm -hmm. something about this movie works yeah and it it endures um yes yeah before before we do hop into the scene another thing i wanted to talk on just because again this month is sort of our school movies month i wanted to talk about how it operates like a school movie and there are a couple things that i really like about it um number one that Almost every scene, like maybe all but two or three, are punctuated. The very end of the scene is an adult telling the kids what to do. It's almost always a teacher saying, you guys need to be quiet, or you need to hurry up and get to class, or I'm assigning homework. I like that the the sort of rhythm and the, the environment that you live in is one that is always under the direction of these overbearing adults who have very specific expectations. I think it really builds that feeling of... I mean, especially not being that age anymore, but remembering what it was like to have those sort of things going on and always being under someone else's authority. I think we're very effectively builds that climate. Once again, this is just kind of crediting uh, Peter Weir because he is a masterful filmmaker and this Mm -hmm. in the wrong hands, this movie wouldn't have had like all these, all this minutia going for it, you know? Uh, And also is carried by some fine dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I that that was another thing about this. Uh, I guess we're um, on set. He gave the uh, the student cast a bunch of media from the time that was specific to the time that they were supposed to their characters are in. Right, right, right. So movies and radio programs and books and stuff, and gave them some some uh, like dialogue and vernacular. And he really encouraged them to in between takes and offset when they're hanging out together to try to maintain 
period specific uh, parlance and and terminology and stuff like that. And I think I think a lot of it is really great. There's a lot of dialogue that I love in this movie. Some of it's really funny. They refer to one of the like uh, Chris's boyfriend as a guy who can eat a football, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a hilarious line. There's a line where. Keating is using a metaphor of like being a bodybuilder or being scrawny, but to but he's applying it to his love of poetry. And he say he says, um, I'd go to the beach and people would kick copies of um of of Walt Whitman in my face. Referring to like those really, really old muscle building cereals where a big strong guy would come and kick sand in the face of the scrawny guy on the beach. Yeah. I think this stuff is really funny. Um, even though I'm just talking through it without laughing at all. Um, well, once again, that's just that's brilliant direction on Weir's part. Mm-hmm. Just being yeah. able to galvanize his troops like that, you know, yeah. to kind of set a tone like that on set is really mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah, especially there, when you when you're dealing with a bunch of, you know, I'm guessing most of these guys were under 25 shooting this movie. Yeah. So when you're dealing, and I know this from listening to. Many filmmakers actually discuss their films, but specifically Paul Thomas Anderson talking about Boogie Nights and how hard it is to control a set of, you know, kids or like young adults of that age group mm-hmm. when you're trying to control them all on set. It's it's hard to do. It's hard to channel that energy in the right direction sometimes. Yeah. So uh, that's really interesting because every character kind of has, I, I don't know, there's a timelessness to the characters, but then it also feels very set in this 50s period there's something transcendent about the performances and about the events that take place in the movie but also Mm -hmm. it's very rooted in that 50s era yeah yeah no there's a lot of great set dressing like i love the setting of this whole thing i love this old brick school and it's sort of underground passages and you know it's chapel and it's sanctuary are all sort of lit by these lights and it's got a lovely autumnal space they're on a lake um and then, yeah, like the 50s of it all, like the the two boys are building a transistor radio so they can pirate mm-hmm. radio waves because they're obviously not allowed to have a radio at the school. Or, you know, Josh Charles, uh, sorry, his character name should not be overlooked, Knox Overstreet, yep. which is like just so white. Like it's very, it's pitch perfect. Like they, they, hit, they hit it on the head with that one. Good um, casting too, Josh yeah. Charles. Yeah, yeah, like him taking the bike into town, things like that. There are all these yeah. things that I think they they get you into the into the fifties mindset of it, and I think it works really well. And it's tough to judge, you know, all the characters' actions in accordance to any sense of realism because neither you or I lived through that time. But mm-hmm. it does feel like a part of all the movies that we've seen that are in the fifties setting. It mm-hmm. feels like they should have hit up an ice cream parlor or something. Yeah, yeah, no, they're definitely there. There are things where I think because they're at a boarding school, stuff like that, they do have sort of this narrow slice. Right. Um, yeah. There's really there's, I don't think there's any reference to food, uh, in the movie at all. Right. They're not talking Just about Salisbury steaks or yeah, they do. They have the, they have the the snacks that they bring out. One guy brought half a roll mm-hmm. from dinner. Who brought half is, the uh, roll? That's not a classy move. That's not what you do at the first meeting of the Dead Poets Society. But do you see how fast those chocolate chip cookies went, though? <laughs> they went they went fast. Yeah. yeah. Those are our, those are those <laughs> actual chocolate chip cookies that I grew up on. Those are the mm-hmm. Mr. Christie's right there. Those are good. They are? A soft good. cookie. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like it. Um, but uh, at this point, I think we probably, you want to dive into the scene, unless there's anything else you want to touch on. No, I, I mentioned the cookies, so I'm good. Oh, yeah. You're all set. Well, then, <laughs> by all means, take it away, Tay. Okay, so 
If you're following along, the scene starts at 53.42 and goes to about 58 minutes on the dot. So it's like just under a five minute scene. We chose a shorter one today. We are, All of our options were actually between shorter scenes in the film, maybe to most people's, in most people's opinions, less significant scenes. Because um, there obviously are the iconic moments throughout the film. But in our scene today, Mr. Keating assigns a poetry assignment to the class. And on the day of their presentations, Todd is finally pushed to confront his fears of expressing himself. The scene stars Ethan Hawke, Robin Williams, Josh Charles, and Matt Carey. Of course, a lot of the characters we've already mentioned are in the scene, but they really don't have a moment or the same presence as these four actors. Yeah, this scene is set up to sort of show you, again, like I mentioned before, you have all these student characters that allow you to sort of plot along a spectrum how they're taking to Keating's instruction and what he's sort of trying to teach them and bring out of themselves. And this one opens with Knox uh, reading a love poem that he's written for this girl, Chris, that he has a big crush on, moves to Hopkins, who is this guy who has almost maybe says like five or six words throughout the movie. But he's got this great presence of always being too cool for what Keating is 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 saying. Yeah, there's Often a couple. They're just, they're just cutting to him and, and just his face to show you that like, yeah, there will always be this guy there who thinks he's better than all this. Right. Yeah, and he's got his buddy behind him who's kind of in the same boat. It, mm. It's There are a lot of stereotypical characters, but there's a lot of nuance to them too. Like you see a lot of actual key moments with this character, yeah. um, Hopkins, who really shouldn't have this impact that he does. Yeah, no, I, I actually am very impressed with uh, with Matt Carey's performance because, again, he does not get a lot of time to do what he's doing, but he does, you can see where he starts from this point of being too cool for it and often returns to it. But over the course of a single lesson or after William or Keating addresses him uh, and sort of provides more instruction, you can see it sort of flash across his face that he's like, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're getting at, but I, I'm too uncomfortable. I'm, I'm, I'm too insecure to really get there yet. Yeah, he's one um, of those guys where the coolness factor just was his safeguard. That was his safety net when he was like kind of over overburdened by too much mm-hmm. knowledge, too many exterior perspectives that he returns to his safe place which is i'm too cool for this and i'm gonna reject it which is super relatable we've we've all incredibly relatable some some extent and we've all known people like this as well when we have sort of pushed past our uncomfortable our out of our comfort zone into something and there are people who are still on the other side of that barrier Um, yeah it's a it's a very classic high school bully or high school mm -hmm. cool kid trope yeah and I, i think it's important that you know, it's it maybe obvious to say, but this is a necessary part of the fabric of this community that that Weir builds here. It'd be way less effective if the first time Keating gave, you know, when he does his carpe diem lesson on the first day of school, if like just a hundred percent, you know, buy in from the students. All yeah. of them are are in on it. They're all like Neil, right? It's way more important that you have. You know, you've got Hopkins who's really not in it at all. You have Todd who you can see is getting into it, but he's way too uncomfortable and way too repressed to really latch on. And you have Neil who dives right into it, and you have the other members of the Dead Poet Society like who take it in different skeptical. directions, right? Yeah. Well, well, Dalton I think occupies this very valid form of like conscientious objector for a little while. Yeah. Um, an exception that proves the rule. Like that's sort of the point of that that scene where they march around the courtyard outside. He's still a part of it. Not choosing to walk is still a form of walking as far as that exercise is concerned. Yeah, I guess I was more referring to that opening scene where he's just having them look at 
the old photos of past students and you just get right. those constant cutaways back to Dalton who has this like the same look on his face the entire mm-hmm. scene of like what are we doing you, yeah can you believe this guy yeah but he softens really quick it but his I agree like his character does kind of stay peripheral until necessary in terms of Keating's influence yeah and his engagement with that influence is constantly one that draws attention to himself which I think is a valid sort of if you did this in a classroom, here are the all the different sort of reactions and types that you would get out of it. And uh, and Weir and the script are very effective in developing that landscape for you. So you always see where someone is in relation to another person in terms of how affected they are and how engaged they are. And this is something that I did want to discuss, like with like in relation to your point about whether Mr. Keating is this main character or if he's the most important character. Because this scene really, in my opinion, and by the look and the way they shot it, it seems to match his perspective more than anybody else's in the room. Yeah, I think you're more paying witness to what Todd does than being in Todd's shoes. I think you're right. Like I was reading, you you put some notes in here right before we started, and I think you have a great analysis of how this film is shot, or this scene is shot with Keating's perspective in mind, not well, one of the students. Honestly, it just took a bit of break of a breakdown. You know, this morning mm-hmm. I was going back through the scene, and you just see each cut kind of matches this idea that these are Keating's observations, and then mm-hmm. if it's not his observation, then the camera's following him around the room. Yeah, and that's ultimately what it comes back to. We can dive into it a bit more, though. Yeah, I think like this scene is filmed in a very effective with an A sort of way. I think it draws you into it really well i think weir knows what he's doing with just a couple relatively simple types of shots to build energy build excitement and reach this sort of peak where where todd may, has an achievement essentially he steps outside of himself mm-hmm. um i think the the way it's produced very well matches the the arc of how the scene is written um so essentially as i had mentioned before you have Knox starts off with his love poem that he's uncomfortable with sharing but he had written it, and it's very sappy, and it's very on the nose. Uh, but he does he does read through it, but you do get the... It sort of sets the stage for some of the boys are going to laugh at this, right? Because it it's silly, and it's sensitive, and it's highly exposed. And he's and then, being very vulnerable, and he's ashamed himself. Mm-hmm. So that invites more negativity towards the mm-hmm. presentation, too. He even says, like, I, I only caught it, like, the third time I watched the scene where he actually apologizes to Mr. Keating immediately. Yeah. He actually says, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, yeah, and, and that just uh, shows, once again, that he actually cares about Mr. Keating's opinion, but he's mm-hmm. just actually ashamed that he read that out loud. Yeah. Well, and, it, and again, it shows you as we move towards Todd, it shows you what's at stake here. It shows you what Todd is afraid of happening, the fact that he has to do this in front of people, that he could be laughed at. Right. Good point. It very well establishes what's going to happen. But before we get to Todd, you get Hopkins, who comes up and he reads... A very simple, highly derivative poem. Um, Do you want to read it? A cat on a mat. Uh, I mean, why don't, we, why don't we put in the audio here? I don't think we'll get dinged for a copyright. It's not very long. A cat set on a mat. <laughs> Thrilling stuff. Yeah, I absolutely think, uh, enthralling. <laughs> Keating, I'm pretty sure he describes it as derivative. Um, which is fair and funny. And he also, there, there's some good sort of reaction there where he does sort of, he doesn't outright admonish Hopkins. Um, no, he knows that that's not the right play. 
Yeah, he, he sort of lets him know that, like, yeah, poetry can be simple, it can be silly, it doesn't have to be that much, but uh, what, what does he say specifically? He says, um, I don't mind that your poem had a simple theme. Sometimes the most beautiful poetry can be about simple things, like a cat, or a flower, or rain. You see, poetry can come from anything with the stuff of revelation in it. Just don't let your poems be ordinary. So again, this is another thing that sets us up for what's going to happen with Todd. The idea that it's not about it's not about content; it's about creation. It's it's not about um, what you make; it's about how you make it. Um, uh, so when it comes up to Todd, um, who's been sitting there sort of sweating the whole time, and you'd seen in previous scenes, he's in his bedroom scrapping poems, trying his best. Nothing's really working. And then Todd clearly in this scene thinks he, he knows a way out of it. It's not a great way because he'll get in trouble, but he won't have to read his poem if he doesn't have a poem. So he, he tells Keating, I didn't write one and assumes that's it. Yeah, and that backfires hard on him. But mm-hmm. then it also, this is really Todd's moment in the film. There's not really another scene. Like we already mentioned how he's he initially appears as the central character of the film, but he's not. He's far from it, actually. But this scene yeah. is Todd's scene. And I know we might take some heat for not doing a scene more involved with Neil, who's clearly one of the more impactful characters of the film. Mm-hmm. But this scene is really structurally significant for how the rest of the movie plays out, too. This is the scene where the furthest outcasted member of Keating's class is brought into the circle. Yeah, because that's the thing. For all these other guys, it's been easier to a certain extent, right? Like, obviously, Neil... Neil was just waiting for something like this. You can see how ready he was for just some adult in his life to allow him to open up and start and, and just, just like an ounce of encouragement got him to start, you know, going against his father's wishes and um, pursuing acting and things like that. And the other guys in the dead poet society to, to certain extents, they like it too. They, they read their own types of poem, Charlie Dalton, you know, incorporates jazz and various forms of cultural appropriation and things like that. All, all very strong, you know, white teenager moves uh, when you start expressing yourself. But it was Todd to make the girls swoon. Yeah, and 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 yeah, and I mean, you know, uh, Josh Charles knocks uh, Overstreet storyline is is very, I think, applicable within the way this movie is written because Keating more than once talks about how poetry is about getting women to swoon. Yeah. Right. Um, so it would be weird if they didn't have a storyline that involved one of the guys um, courting a girl. Obviously, um, courting is a generous term for what goes on in Knox's storyline, but we'll we'll leave that be. Yeah, um, I found it cringy too. Every time I've seen oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it, uh, it it it. I don't know if it was supposed to play well at the time, but it, it has aged horribly. Um, but yeah, this is Todd's way in, and he requires a lot of encouragement, even even a, a strong push. And Keating chooses this moment because, you know, Todd thinks I didn't write a poem. That means I don't have to read a poem. And this is the lesson that it's not about the writing. It's about the doing. It's it's an it's an experiential thing. So yeah, Keating and- pulls him up in front of the class and walks him through the process of reflecting and creating and uh, and and like just all in the moment. Motivated by a yop. Yes, a barbaric yop. Yeah, so he writes a Walt Whitman quote on the board that says, I sound my barbaric yop over the rooftops mm-hmm. of the world, which yeah. I th- I think sounds pretty silly 
but mm-hmm. it, it really strikes a chord in this scene. And this is something I've seen in other things, and I, I'm not an educator myself, but I would not be surprised based on my experience working like, you know, at camps and things like that, that sometimes the quickest shortcut to get a, a shy kid out of their shell is to just prompt something loud and something big. It does not have to be measured or well thought through, but the idea of just getting them into that upper sort of end of the volume that they can produce is something that automatically draws them out. And they, they did this in another movie um, called Coda, which came out recently. Uh, movies about a child of deaf adults. And the music teacher in that is sort of teaching this, this kid uh, how to sing. And a pivotal scene in that is just him getting her to sing ugly because she's so quiet, even though she's on pitch and things like that. So I think this is this is a concept in in teaching and education in terms of breaking through a kid's barriers. And they just happen to have a very poetic one. It's a it's a quote from Walt Whitman. Um, so they start with this yop and sort of repeat trying to get Todd to actually produce a proper yop. And when he does, Keating latches on, right? And then he gets him right into the composition. So this scene is shot in a way that very much reflects what we'd already been talking about, that you sort of set the stage with Knox and with Hopkins, and then you change it with Todd because it's this different experience. And how they film it does that as well. Like Knox and Hopkins, you have these static shots, right? Yeah. So in between, well, I guess to establish the scene, there's a static shot Mm -hmm. from the midway through the room. And it's, yeah. this is kind of like the viewer's perspective, but Keating is in, is to the side of the shot and mm-hmm. you're watching Knox kind of embarrass himself. When he goes mm-hmm. back to his seat, you get a quick insert medium shot of Knox getting a smack on the back from Dalton. Yeah. And once again, this is like almost Keating's observation. These little insert moments are his observations of his students. Uh, yeah, he's seeing what the fallout is of their their readings or their performances. And and this is important because you can see how measured his approach is from here on out through the rest of the scene because of these insert Mm -hmm. shots that give you that perspective and that insight as to like, this is how the teacher is reading the room. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know from doing a bit of teaching myself, you look at these interactions and you can gauge a lot about how a student's actually feeling in your classroom setting at the time. So Mm -hmm. I think that this was really relatable and important. So, once again, when Hopkins goes up and delivers his rather derivative spe- uh, poem, it's the same kind of static angle on him. And as he walks past Mr. Keating, we get another insert medium shot of him kind of high-fiving the guy behind him, the other cool kid, yeah. per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is important because this is where Mr. Keating actually interjects and he very well could have berated the young Hopkins. Mm-hmm. However, you can see how measured he is because he almost comes in hot and he you can almost see the tension in him dialing it back right you can kind of see if i if i berate this kid in front of the whole class he's not going to learn anything yeah so he comes up with this measured approach uh kind of disarms him by saying we're not laughing at you we're laughing near you which is insulting in a subtle way and it also undercuts hopkins's intentions which is to be cool yeah and then he, you know, he follows that up by saying what he said about, you know, just don't make your poem ordinary. And this is the lesson that Hopkins, like, almost seems to, like, resonate with. He's almost, like, snapped out of, like, this whole, I need to be cool for this moment. And it's like, wow, you just related, you got down to my level and you related with me. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it allows you to sort of see that 
you know, Hopkins does, he's, he's internalizing some of it, even though he can't necessarily act on it. He's too uncomfortable still. Yeah, he's trying to reject it. You can see it in his performance, but he just, he is actually, he can't help but listen a bit to Mr. Mm-hmm. Keating there. And then, and yeah, and then he, he spots Todd and he says, let's put you out of your misery. And you and get, once Todd, again, the, like these yeah. downward angles at Todd, once again, yeah. inferring his, pers- like, this is Keating's perspective of Todd. And yeah. Todd's all sweaty and stuff. And then, unlike the other two static shots, when Keating is speaking, the camera isn't static anymore. It's actually slightly loose. You can see if you're really paying attention that it, this is called the loose head on, yeah. on set, which is basically like the camera is not locked on. It's on a ball system mm-hmm. on the tripod. Yeah. And it just means that the cameraman is keeping it loose. And yeah. that and there this, might this be a is bit a, of a this jiggle. Is a, this is a common and always effective technique where if the character that you're focusing on, whether they're the subject or the perspective, if they're entering something that's uncomfortable or they're unsure of or they're not in control, you add a little bit of shake or just a little bit of looseness to the camera and it implies that to the audience, right? It makes you a little uncomfortable, you a little less in control. And I think for a movie like this, and I'm going to talk about kind of the contrasting camera throughout the film, but when Keating is in his zone there's kinetic energy in some Mm -hmm. way shape or form whether it's characters moving through the scene or it's the camera actually doing a lot of the movement himself itself and that's the case when todd goes up yeah his his approach is more fluid than another educator so the camera is fluid with that right like yeah that that was the thing it er, earlier in the movie they had the the great sort of sequence of first day of classes we have all these teachers who are doing the same thing that they've always done, and then Keating completely um, tosses everything. Right, like com- like everything gets gets spun on the kids. Yeah, I love um, I love that first scene with him where he just yeah. kind of whistles through the classroom and says, "Yeah," and walks out. Yeah, are you coming? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, yeah. So I think that's very effective the way that the the camera matches Keating's style. And it also fits into how uncomfortable Todd must be as he's brought up to the front of the class now without a poem. I'd say arguably in a worse situation than if he had written a poem he didn't like or wasn't proud of or just didn't want to say out loud. Now he's going to go up and compose. Yeah, so in in this scene, once again, the camera is moving the entire time that Todd is at the front of the room. It's with Williams, though. Sometimes Todd will be out of the shot. It stays with with Mr. Keating the entire time. And the only real noteworthy thing, other than the fact that the camera is doing a beautiful 360 movement, it's doing a lot of beautiful movement, but there is a moment where the class starts to laugh at Todd's poem, even though it's like what he's doing up there is going swimmingly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, There's a moment where he says something about the wet blanket and the class kind of mm-hmm. laughs at that moment. And without cutting to any reaction shots of the class, Mr. Keating's like, ignore them, ignore them. And he Mm -hmm. keeps it going. And you can see that he turns, but we don't get his perspective shot. And that implies, well, maybe more than one thing, but it implies that that wasn't important to Keating. That wasn't important to Todd. Neither of them noticed the rest of the room. This is their moment at the front of the class together. And they're in the zone. Yeah. Yeah. Like Todd opens his eyes, but yeah, William Williams is still focusing on Todd. So the camera stays on both of them. Yeah. But I think, I think it's a really palpable sort of like breaks the magic for just a second and shows you how like you do, you know, all these kids, if they're following this kind of philosophy in their lives, there are going to be points where people brush up against you and, and you're swimming upstream and you have to, you have to reestablish. It's not just as easy as getting into it once. He has to, 
get back into that place of composition and creation. And of course, you know, Keating's right there with him. He helps him do that. Yeah. And there's, you know, obviously teachers can't do what Keating does in this moment in terms of like grabbing him, spinning him around, covering his eyes yeah. and stuff. It's very hands-on. Yeah. It's, it's pretty handsy, <laughs> but at yeah. the same time, it's, it clearly gets through to Todd midway through this, mm-hmm. uh, these instructions, I guess that Keating's giving him, it almost seems to click. And yeah. then what comes out of his mouth is actually quite beautiful. And I think that's what the dialogue mm-hmm. and the scripting of the scene is actually what makes it come together at the end. As much as the yeah. camera work does this scene a tremendous service, it really is the structure of the dialogue at the end mm-hmm. and the impactfulness of what Todd actually comes up with, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, and it's these two great performances in it as well. I think Williams, obviously he has this great physical presence. And I'd say like maybe the most powerful parts of this are once once Todd is going, right? Like once he's yeah. really got yep. him done, it's after the laugh and he's going, this is where they, they break apart. And you get a cut to seeing Keating sort of backing away and kneeling down and just very like Robin Williams, just such a graceful person, right? Like his movement is so, so controlled. There's a lot of reverence and awe. But he also is very fluid, right? He almost is like dancing Mm -hmm. through the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But especially like when he draws away from Todd and just sort of watches him complete his poem. I think it's this lovely, lovely, graceful sort of movement as he, he sort of just locks into what he's doing and is 100% focused on Todd. And then Ethan Hawke, too. There's a lot of emotion in this. It's not easy to act like these words are coming to you when they obviously aren't. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, improvised, you I know? think that some of this stuff is so hard for actors. I, I thought the same thing about uh, Neil when he's doing the, the play. Like, it's so hard to act like you're acting in a play in a movie. Yeah, the extra layers there for Robert Sean Leonard to... Uh, to, to try to incorporate. But yeah, I didn't mean to take away from your point. Ethan Hawke's doing the same thing in this scene, and it, it's really impressive to see him like kind of stumble over his words. Ethan Hawke is, mm-hmm. well, at least now he is a very, like your idea of him in movies is this very measured, calm, cool, collected mm-hmm. actor. Yeah. But he has he has this great energy to him in uh, in this scene that I think feels very raw and very real. And I mean, apparently in between... In between takes, Robin Williams is Robin Williams. He's making a lot of jokes throughout this entire movie. And I hear that uh, Ethan Hawke didn't really appreciate it. And I'm not surprised that Ethan Hawke was probably a bit of an over-serious uh, young actor. Yep. Yeah, but, that, um, that fits. But I, I, th- I think it works in this. I think, obviously, Williams, without a doubt, uh, I would put good money on the fact that he is improvising aspects of his lines throughout this entire movie. He knows what the script is and he's doing like a good chunk of it but i think he's always a little off kilter he's doing his own thing and i think it plays really well in this scene especially against um young ethan hawk as todd i think he just has a great natural energy in this i think as a scene itself like obviously there are others that we haven't talked about or that we just mentioned like carpe diem scene and no captain my captain and all these sort of triumphs for the kids that have big musical cues and are very affecting i in my mind, I actually don't think there is a big musical rise under Todd's poem. I think it's completely silent. I think so too. And, you, and I think there's you get a, the big musical rise after this. There's the big yeah. soccer montage. Yeah, and they do. They, they go back into classical music, um, which is which is always effective. But 
Um, no, I think this is a very powerful scene. I think it's it's a scene that can give you goosebumps without using music, which is always a uh, a triumph. I think yes, absolutely, a real achievement. And uh, and yeah, like one of maybe two scenes where Ethan Hawke's character really gets to go for it. Yeah, and I I just want to keep coming back to how masterful Peter Weir is as a director in general. Like I think he I don't think this movie works in many directors' hands. I think the script was strong. But the, the way that scenes are conveyed and specifically the camera movements throughout the film, mm-hmm. I did say I was going to touch on it. So I, I will mention briefly that throughout the film, there is a constant contrast or battle between static shots that are omniscient and cold and distant versus impactful movement close-up shots that convey all the emotion and sensitivity of these young boys. Mm-hmm. And there's just such a conflict between the two. And that really reflects the attitudes of the adults in the school and the enforcement of all these rules versus mm-hmm. the intimacy that the kids feel towards each other and towards what Mr. Keating is putting down for them. And I, th- yeah. I thought that is that play through almost the entire film. Yeah, yeah, I think this scene's a great example of a lot of things that take place and a lot of the reasons why, under the surface, why this movie has lasted, right? Like the concept of Carpe Diem and the idea of lauding your teacher and, oh, Captain, my captain, and things like that. I think those are all obviously powerful and it's obvious why we latch onto those in our culture and spoof them and use them outside of film and outside of TV. But. I don't think this this movie lasts as long if you don't have someone like Weir understanding that whether or not I lock off a camera or I let it move or when I use music and when I don't and how I direct these kids to maintain the feeling of being kids in the 50s. All these things feed into this one large product and I don't think this movie lasts as long if you don't have that kind of thoughtful direction and use of the tools of cinema. Yeah, clearly, some, uh, clearly he's a director who has a lot of control and has mm-hmm. a lot of like foresight into what he's doing. He it's not someone who shows up on set and improvises what he's going to do. This is clearly very well planned and it's a mm-hmm. masterwork of directing. Yes, absolutely. So uh, with that, I think we can probably move on over into shout outs. What do you say, Tay? Sure. Sure. Uh, I'm going to keep mine pretty boring and uh, obvious. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. It's just a, a scene that I would have loved to, tackle on this podcast with you but obviously we we chose this scene and i'm really happy we did but this is just another one of the scenes that we could have gone off on um it's the first dorm room scene we kind of mentioned this is where todd is introduced to the guys sort Mm -hmm. of like he's kind of in his own world unpacking his bags in the scene and i just really like it because of the setup for the rest of the film they're almost all optimistic you know eager kids who are cut down by some level of adult influence or weakness in the scene. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's, they are all contrasted in different ways. So Todd is seen as like the shy guy who's one of the mm-hmm. kids already called him a stiff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Neil is berated by his dad, kind of in front of everybody, kind of excluding everybody. And mm-hmm. then Meeks is called a nerd uh, Dalton's uh, I love Meeks. Dalton's cheating on all of his schoolwork through Meeks mm-hmm. just to pass classes, and then after Neil, or sorry, after Neil's dad leaves, then he's able to talk with 
Dalton and Knox, who and he calls them both up because they wouldn't be able to talk to their parents either yeah. in the way that they're asking him to. So once again, this is just cutting down all these promising young attitudes really early in the film. You see like the potentials there and they're all being held back by something and that allows their arcs to just flourish under Keating throughout the rest of the film. Well, and they really set the stage for a lot of stuff in this scene. Another thing that I really like about this is that it gives you, I think it establishes this, you know, pubescent, this in-between stage that these guys are in, where when they all go into the room, they're all seeing each other for the first time. I really think they speak like businessmen. They're talking like adults about school. Rumor has it, you did summer school. Yep, chemistry. My father thought I should get ahead. How's your summer slick? Kane. <laughs> yeah, where it is you did summer school, you're getting ahead. Mm, they're lining up their different specialties for study group. It's this stuff that's like very like adult speak, like a little bit put on, but you can tell like that's kind of how they're expected to talk already. But then as soon as like they know that they're alone, they lampoon the four pillars of Hilton mm-hmm. uh, as travesty, horror, dec- decadence, and excrement. And then they start smoking yeah, cigarettes. I was going to say, they I light love. the cigarettes up. Yeah. So you get this sort of yin and yang where it's like these are their expectations and this is who they really are and who they really are is constantly being hidden and mitigated, right? Then Neil's dad shows up and then the teachers are yelling at them at the end of every scene. Mm-hmm. I think I think they, they do a lot of stage setting in the scene, a lot of characterization. It's, it's pretty efficient. It's very um, efficient. I was going to say that as well just to cap this scene recap off. The scene's like five minutes long and you get all this information built in, and yeah. set up in one scene. And set up is... Not the hardest part about making a movie, but it's really important that you do it efficiently and effectively. Yeah. Especially in a in a ensemble cast like this. Definitely. Definitely. We we talked about some other ensemble movies, and of course it's always the economy of you've only got so much screen time, you've only got so much space. How do you how do you get these characters across? How do you make them different from one another? And the fact that they didn't take the easy way out and say, like, this kid's the the bully kid, this kid's the mm. They don't even go down that path. They're all flawed, friends. normal yeah. friends. Yeah, they're different and the same in different ways. Yeah. Um, so for my shout out, uh, I was going to talk about how this movie is aged, but I actually think that's boring and, and, and obvious in a number of ways. I want to point out something that I've probably seen this maybe four or five times. We both just watched it recently, actually, as a part of our, our a film group, a film club that we're in. Um, but this is the first time that I really sort of started looking at the name Dead Poets Society and how and what what it's actually supposed to mean. Because I think, you know, prior to this, off the top of my head, I would have said it was Dead Poets with like a um, an apostrophe, like it was possessive, but it's not. Um, another thing that came up to me this time was that in their first meeting or one of the meetings, Neil mentions that um, Thoreau is is a member of the group, right? Right. So that implies that this group is not about dead poets. It's for dead poets. And I think that lie, when you, you dig into that a little bit, you see how this movie is a lot, obviously, carpe diem. It's about recognizing that your death is inevitable and it may come sooner than you think. And as such, you should act and do things more more wholeheartedly and sooner than you would otherwise. That scene is so, really ominous on yeah. a rewatch, by so, the way. So, yeah, what that implies to me, just the name Dead Poets Society and the fact that Thoreau is a member, not a subject, they're saying that they're all dead poets. They're just not yet, right? So it's this very well aware. 
Yeah, they're very aware of the fact that they are going to die. They're poets right now. We'll all be dead poets. It's that one of one of the better lines I think from Fight Club where they where he says on a long enough timeline, mortality rate drops to zero for everyone, no matter what. The fact that you die is the one thing that really ties us all together, and I think it's right there in the title of the group. And maybe this is all obvious to other people, but it's something that only just occurred to me in this last rewatch. I wanted to point it out. No, that's great. I love that as a shout out. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, just to let you know, our next movie, uh, as we're getting into December, we're getting into holiday movies. Dun, dun, dun. And I, I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of, like, not a Christmas movie, but it's a Christmas movie movies out there. The most obvious, and I'd say the most tired, being Die Hard. We could have also picked almost any Shane Black movie. But uh, we went a different direction. We want to do something a little bit newer and also, in another way, a bit older. And it does technically, at least part of it, takes place on Christmas Day. Uh, what movie is it, Tay? We are going to do David Lowry's 2021 fantasy film, The Green Knight. Yeah. Now, if you saw that in theaters and you don't know what we're talking about, just keep in mind that, you know... Um, uh, Gawain wakes up in a brothel on Christmas Day and uh, Alicia Vikander's character throws his pants at him and says Christ is born. So it is a Christmas movie and we're, we're, we're sticking to we're it. We're calling it now. It's a Christmas yeah. movie. <laughs> so uh, if you haven't watched that yet, I do think it's available for VOD right now. Uh, check our show notes. I'll figure that out by the time we publish this and uh, make sure to give it a watch. It's a phenomenal movie. It's an insanely uh, detailed production. And uh, we're going to have a good time talking about it. And then the movie that we're doing after that, uh, we will announce on Instagram. We just actually today put out our poll for our holiday movie. And I'm just going to wait till after we're done recording to tally the votes. So, so it will be very there. much up to you, the people. Mm-hmm. Make sure you get with us on Instagram. You can Every other movie that we cover will be an audience vote for the foreseeable future. And it'll always have a tied theme or actor or director or idea between it and the other one that we pick independently ourselves yeah we're gonna try and give you guys a say in what we do and uh, we're really looking forward to it so please cast your votes we we'd love to hear what you want us to talk about yeah and then uh, for recommendations very quickly just to wrap up our school month i'm going with uh, election an alexander payne movie from 1999 with uh, matthew broderick and reese witherspoon it's just a a great sort of comedy drama. Um, it, it digs into both the lives of teachers and the lives of students. Uh, it's funny and it's it's odd at times and uh, and very telling. I just I've only seen it once. I think I'm going to go back to it pretty soon. But I very much enjoyed it, and it's another it's another great sort of entry in the school movie pantheon. Yeah, I love Alexander Payne, and I found his movies pretty consistently unique and interesting. So. Highly recommend Election. It's a good Broderick performance, too. It is. And those aren't the most common. No, there aren't too many of them. Uh, What are you you recommending this week, Ted? Well, we talked about it just before we started recording today. And because it's Remembrance Day that we are recording this, I decided to pick one of the few war movies I've enjoyed that's come out in the past decade. And that was... I know people are going to just comment that we're returning to horror too soon after October, but I'm going to pick 2018's Overlord, a Julius Avery movie that involves, uh, well, you know, I won't spoil it. It's, it's horror and it's war and involves Nazis mm-hmm. and, uh, it's got Wyatt Russell. Okay. Like we, la- I think just last episode I recommended everybody wants some. 
Also, Wyatt Russell, we're a big fan. Get get him where you can because it sounds like most of the time he's just out uh, camping in a van with his wife. Yeah, uh, he'd be in my top nice, five people that I want on the podcast with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wyatt Russell, Denny, David Desmalchin. Yeah, yeah. We're we're building our little crew of uh, of uh, one day special guests. If somehow you hear this, Wyatt, please join us on the pod. Yeah, I'd um, love to have you. But yeah, so the movie does start. <laughs> I just wanted to say real quick, the movie does star Wyatt Russell, Joven Adepo, and Mathilde Olivier. And mm-hmm. uh, this is, if you miss this one somehow, I think it'll surprise you. Yeah, it's a like a war, horror, genre, crossover. It's a it's a goodie. Yeah, and it's just fun. You know, like you can yeah. tell it's it was made with the intention of being fun. So that's my mm-hmm. recommendation for the week uh, and as my Remembrance Day film. And uh, yeah, that's it for another episode. Uh, as always, if you listen to us on iTunes, please uh, give us a review. We'd love to get some input there. And it helps boost our our presence and our name and get more listeners. And as always, you can email us at singleservingcinema at gmail.com if you have questions or suggestions uh, or thoughts on episodes that we did. Uh, Every Sunday on Instagram, we do our weekly roundup. We'd love to hear from you there, whether or not we got you to watch a movie because we talked about it or recommended it, or just what you're watching otherwise. We we share that around. It's a great way to build out your to-watch list. Uh, We'd love to see you there. Uh, and Tay, I, I think uh, I'll leave it to you to wrap this up. I'm sure there's a uh, there's a, a a pretty obvious way to do so top of mind.